My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine as well as an IR consultant. And together we are bursting the Western bubble. Today we will analyze how to understand the war in Ukraine through the lens of the Western bubble. While Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these we use the concept of the Western bubble. Balder, explain to us again for those who missed the previous introduction episode, what is the Western bubble? The Western bubble is an outcome of four centuries of unprecedented geopolitical success, well, internally as well as externally, in fact, by the West, who have created essentially their own self-aggrandizing mythology in which the superiority of their system, democracy, liberalism, capitalism, the basic foundations of Western society, have essentially become unquestioned in the 21st century. Politicians and other leaders are criticized for managerial ethical mistakes, but the system itself gets a free pass. So it's never about the foundations. And this bubble leads to two major problems. Internally, rot is setting into our societies um, and the reaction of our societies to look at the symptoms rather than the underlying causes. And for at the foreign policy level, uh, we view the world dogmatically as being one of us essentially being the good guys, representing moral righteousness in a world full of authoritarian evil. Whichever mistake is being made in foreign policy, bad wars being started or um, bad trade, trade sanctions being implemented, it is okay because we're the good guys and though we can make mistakes, overall we are a source of moral righteousness. Mm. And so every episode of Bursting the Western Bubble follows the same structure, if we can call it that, because it is basically five questions um, that in order to analyze what each topic uh, stand, will, will, what each topic is all about, we answer these. Um, the first one being, what are the facts? So here we provide a, a factual basis for our analysis. The second question is, what is the bubble, where we analyze the overarching problem of Western delusion? The third question is, what is the personal bias, where we see how leaders, especially Western leaders, are affected by non-rational factors? The fourth question is then, what, what is the damage? So here we look into how exactly Western bubble is, uh, bubble is harmful. And then finally, we seek to answer, what is the future, where we lay out how each topic might develop down the line. If you, like to, if you would like to know more about how this podcast started and who we are, make sure to listen to our very first introduction episode. This being said, uh, let's get to it. Answering the first question. So what are the facts uh, here? Again, let's, let's look a little bit into a fact sheet of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Because um, following a Russian military buildup of uh, about 150,000 to 200 troops on the Russia-Ukraine border from late 2021, the conflict expanded significantly when Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February in 2022. Prior to this, the Kremlin officially recognized the two self-proclaimed separatist states in the Donbas and openly sent troops into the territories to protect Russian minorities living there or, as Putin said it, a special military operation to, de to demilitarize and to denazify uh, Ukraine, something that we will get to uh, later down this episode. 
To give a little bit of background on Russia's and Ukraine's relationship, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, the former Soviet republics became independent and maintained close ties. In 1994, Ukraine agreed to remove Soviet nuclear weapons in Ukraine in exchange for security guarantees by Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States about the territorial integrity and political independence of Ukraine. However, the Russian sense of Ukraine essentially being part of the Russian Empire remained. In the late 1990s, a young Putin promised Russians to recreate Russian pride after the humiliation of the fall of the Soviet Union. Since then, he has been aggressively re-establishing Russian dominance, as seen in Georgia, Moldova and Crimea. This has been fueled by the perceived threat of NATO, which, is, which has been expanding around the Russian sphere of influence. The initial invasion focused on the east of Ukraine as well as Kiev. However, in late April, a Russian readjustment and joining of forces with separatist groups in the Donbas increased the troops to 250,000. Now, the war focuses on the east, where Russia seems to slowly make gains. Troops have moved away from Kiev, which still continues to be target of Russian airstrikes. Over the past months, we have seen significant casualties and destruction on both sides. The initial international reaction was an international outcry, with notable exceptions such as China, India, some Arab countries such as the UAE, as well as some African countries um, who have remained rather, rather, rather neutral, to call it that. Um, a resolution in the United Nations General Assembly passed with a total of 141 countries in favor of reaffirming Ukrainian sovereignty, independence and territorial integrity. The Western reaction in particular was immediate condemnation, imposing sanctions on finances, technology and McDonald's, um, as well as weapon deliveries and an eventual oil embargo. So now that we've looked at the facts, Boulder, are there any facts you want to, you want to add? Is there anything I missed? No, I think uh, that's, that's, that's a pretty good overview. Um, we'll get into the details, I assume. Okay, perfect. Then uh, kind of looking into the second question, and now it becomes a lot more conversational. So what's, what's the actual bubble here? Um, what are we looking at when, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, the Western bubble? So what, what, what's interesting here is that um, the relationship between the West and Russia is a really good, powerful example of um, the bubble. First of all, because the West got into existence because of the Soviet Union, because of essentially Russia, right? The West in its current form, it identified itself as a bulwark against communism in the 20th century. But it, there's something that goes a lot deeper. Um, and I'm, I, I actually have uh, some real personal uh, connection to this because even though I was born and raised in the Netherlands, my grandmother was Russian and she came um, to the Netherlands after the Second World War. She met my granddad in Germany where they were both working working, and uh, during the war forced to work by the Germans and they married and then they went back to the Netherlands. And for my grandmother, that was a very difficult situation, not just because 1940s, 1950s Netherlands was a pretty narrow-minded place in many ways, but especially because she was Russian and there was a lot of mm, suspicion against her because of her nationality, because of her religion, because Russian Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church was not seen as properly Christian, but also because she was seen as a representative of this non-Western communist threat looming right and my grandmother has always found that that experience difficult later on she managed it better but it was never kind to her that that 
conflict that people perceived between their own image of who they were versus this stranger, this Russian getting into their midst. And so, so the, that's that's a sort of a personal practical example of of illustrating uh, very clearly the Western bubble in terms of Russia. So Russians have throughout history, through at least throughout modern history since the 17th, 18th century, have perceived Western Europe to be disrespectful towards them. Why? Because Western Europe saw itself as more advanced, saw itself as um, essentially more sophisticated, better, more enlightened than the Russians. The Russians were part of Europe, but not really. They were backward peasants, that kind of idea, right? Yeah, and that's and that's that's that that's something that that is very deeply ingrained in 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 Western attitudes towards Russia. That's always been there. Then the twenty first century, uh, sorry, then the twentieth century comes along, and and uh, you get this confirmation that there's something wrong with Russia because they start there. They they are the source of communism. Remember that France and the United Kingdom were pretty easy in the 1930s on Nazi Germany. Why? Because Nazi Germany at least wasn't communist, so it was seen as a bulwark against Stalinism, against the communist Russians. And uh, that continued to, to sort of reinforce the Western idea of the bubble, um, of the idea that they are somehow better than others, and specifically better than Russians. And that then translates into uh, 21st century behavior, where you still, underlying everything, still kind of notice that very clearly. Russians are not seen as particularly uh, sophisticated, as particularly advanced. At, at best, they are victims of an evil dictator, Vladimir Putin, but um, often the Russians themselves are being seen as a little bit... Um, backwards. Yeah. Backwards, or at least a little bit aggressive or whatever. I uh, think you can easily call it that if you just look at how they're portrayed in movies. Exactly. I, I mean, that. absolutely. And a lot of those movies found their inspiration from the Cold War, but it goes beyond that, right? It is not just a Cold War mentality in which you have two teams and you're on the other team. There's something much deeper. Russians are being portrayed in such a way that not just puts them in a dark place, but it also elevates how Westerners look at themselves because they're not Russian, Right. And, and, and that's, that's the, that makes Russia such a really interesting example if we want to explain the Western bubble. Uh, needless to say, if anyone is doubting this, that all of that image is, is, is nonsense, right? I mean, it, it, it is based on, on um, a narrative that has very little foundation, real foundation. And then um, the Soviet Union collapses. What does that do to the Western bubble? Well, um, it completely reinforces the, the image of being the, on the right side of history, the West being victorious. Not only did the West, or at least the Anglo-Saxon West, defeat Nazi Germany in authoritarianism, now democracy and liberalism and capitalism defeated communism in, in the most scary standoff that we had in history of two nuclear powers um, trying to dominate the globe. So now in the 1990s, you see a situation where the West finds a reinforced sense of self because of the defeat of the Soviet Union. In that decade, Russia completely collapses internally, in large part because of really bad foreign policy making by the West. But nobody talks about that. 
And Ukraine becomes independent, of course, um, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's very important to, to, to realize, right, when we talk about the war in Ukraine, that Ukraine is a very recent country. Now, you can get some Ukrainian nationalists coming over saying, yeah, but Ukraine has a very long, proud history of being Ukrainian. That is arguable. That's, we, that's certainly something worth discussing. But there is no doubt that if you look at 19th century or 18th century Ukraine, at least the intellectual class, the writing class, the ones that we have records of, perceive themselves to be mostly Russian. Um, and I, I think I think what makes it this part even more interesting is uh, when you, I mean, now, now looking at the war, And you see a lot of interviews from civilians who have stayed behind in the war zone. Um, the the amount of times I hear that, oh, why are they shooting us? We're brothers. We're Russian. Or like, I mean, what, what, I mean, not necessarily we are Russian, but like there is the sentiment of having a shared history and being very, very close to each other. Uh, so, so I definitely, I definitely see that. Yeah. It's and 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 that's sometimes we're gonna. And what that also means, and that's very clear, that. For the past 30 years, the Ukrainian government, for all of a sudden becoming a new Westphalian state, a new sovereign independent state, has had to go through enormous lengths to create a sense of nationalism and pride in Ukraine and to distance itself from Russia. Now, uh, that is in itself a legitimate exercise. Um, if, the, if that's needed, that's typically something you see in countries that become independent. They need to reinforce a national sense of pride because otherwise it's very hard to control sovereign territory. But of course, that automatically means a certain anti-Russian bias, right? That then feeds into the loop of Russians believing that someone is having some kind of conspiracy against them and is trying to separate them from their Ukrainian brothers. Mm, yeah. And then, and then how does how does Putin fit into all of this? Because I assume that, again, I mean, I, I read out at the beginning that for him it was very much a thing of rebuilding the, the Russian Empire. So how does he fit into all of this from the Russian perspective, maybe? Yeah, so th this is, Putin comes to power because of the failure of the 1990s from a Russian perspective. Russia collapsed. It's when the oligarchs became powerful. Putin Uh, comes to power, pointing at his pre predecessor, Yeltsin, uh, who completely messed up in many, many ways, and say, I am not gonna let Russia be humiliated any further by the West. The West has tried to make wash, uh, Russia into one of them, essentially saying, look, the West is so deluded by its own bubble that they thought that Russia could become like the United States or the United Kingdom, sending all their... Uh, consultants, other analysts to Russia to help them get into a capitalist environment that has been a huge disaster. It has been humiliating for Russia. I, as a Russian leader, will put Russia back on the map where it belongs as a powerful, independent, non-Western nation. And uh, there's no, there's no coincidence there that he likes to reference Peter the Great, who was another one who, on the one hand, very much the Tsar, Peter the Great, was well, on the one hand very much believed in a good relation with the West, but on Russian terms, in, in terms of Russian strength. He built St. Petersburg as a window to the world, as a window towards the West, essentially. But um, at the same time, he did so believing that Russia needed to be respected as an equal by the French, by the British, by um, the German principalities, Prussia, etc., And 
And, and that is something that Putin wants to portray again, right? To say, I will go back to that state. Mm. And how does, uh, because I, I read it out earlier, so how does the statement, a special military operation to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine fit into this? Because, I mean, the immediate reaction from anyone in the West will be, oh, I mean, how is he going to denazify Ukraine if Zelensky is a Jew? Even a Russian-speaking Russian speaking Jew. So how does this fit into this and maybe how is this being misunderstood, misrepresented in the West? That is very interesting um, that you, that you mentioned this because this it was fascinating to observe how immediately uh, the world started pointing out that Zelensky himself was Jewish, right? As if that then completely delegitimized Putin's words because how can he talk about Nazis if the president is Jewish? And this says a lot from two different angles. From the first angle is that this says something about the guilt and the very understandable guilt complex of um, the West, where straight away they uh, are going to be very, very concerned and very sensitive to the fact that there, if there's a Jewish leader, that a certain type of language needs to be used um, out of respect for what happened during the Second World War. Now, that makes a lot of sense, but that is not the Russian experience, right? Russia sees itself as the ones who delivered uh, the victory in the Second World War, despite the awful, the, the brutal Holocaust, they're the ones who mostly defeated Germany, right? Um, the West likes to think that the United States and the UK defeated Germany, but if you look at the numbers, if you look at the way the war went, most of the hard work by far was done by the Soviet Union. And so the Russians, they, when they think of Nazis, they don't think necessarily of uh, directly uh, the, the anti-Jewish Holocaust problem, they, they think of them delivering the world from evil, them being the victors against Hitler's um, evil plans. And so there's a disconnect between how the Russians and the West think about these uh, items. What the West doesn't seem to understand is that Putin was specifically referring to the fact that Ukraine, uh, during the Second World War, was in large part being used by Nazi Germany, or at least Ukrainian independent uh, separatist groups, were being used to fight against the Soviet Union. They, Germany came into Ukraine and said, fight with us against your Russian overlords. And uh, that is what Putin was referring to, the idea that you've got these especially right-wing groups in Ukraine that feel very comfortable taking an anti-Russian position just as they did in the Second World War. So whereas the West went all upset and, and started obsessing about this word denazification, it was basically two worlds speaking a different mm. language. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then is, is there anything else we're, we're missing from the bubble? I feel like we've we've covered the, the history, we've covered the, especially that part on denazification. Um, what else is there? No, it, it just I think it is important with these historical things to realize that it is not a judgment on either side, but that it's in Western media, these items that we just discussed are basically not being either understood or acknowledged, right? And without acknowledging these these issues, this this historical context and the fact that Putin, is not a complete lunatic for saying denazification. Obviously, Zelensky is not a Nazi. That's not what any serious person would think. But if you try to understand what Putin was referring to, it becomes much easier to look at potential solutions rather than just reaffirming your own biases by 
partially understanding what he says, but ignoring the bit that doesn't suit your own means, right? And that is something that you see over and over again in foreign policy making and the way the media writes about these items. And I assume that the audience to this statement was, the, well, the intended audience was not necessarily the West, but if anything, the Russian population. And in a very common pattern among Russian politicians is to refer back to the Second World War, because however painful it was for everyone involved, the, the tens of millions of Russians that died um, are, of course, still very much in the, the psyche of, of the Russian spirit. It is very common for Russian politicians to refer to the Second World War as a an eventually noble endeavor of them being the good guys fighting the bad guys. Mm-hmm. The good, sorry, the bad guys coming from the West, by the way, from a Russian perspective. Yeah, uh, exactly. And then, so, so let's look into into the third question. So, what is the personal bias? And since we're already on Putin, um, kind of saying how he he was misunderstood, but then now let's let's just look at Putin and try to understand. Okay, what is he what is he doing here? Um, so, so, how, so what do we need to understand about Putin in order to to make sense of this, or in order to see where is the Western bubble either having him right or wrong? Yeah, so once again, it's probably useful to point out, especially because this is our first content-related uh, episode, that understanding is not the same as justifying, right? I mean, I I, I don't think it's either your or my um, goal here to justify any kind of behavior, but just to analyze what's going on, right? So when we say, let's understand Putin, that's not the same as saying, oh, we are trying to cover for him. Those, I'm just saying that before half of our audience switches off and gets upset with us. Um, Putin, from his perspective, has always seen himself as this ideological successor to the great Tsars, to Stalin to a certain extent. I mean, his relationship with Stalin, his perspectives on Stalin are a bit complex. He has seen himself as the one, as a leader to make Russia great again. And that was his platform on how he became leader. And that has how, is how he remained popular throughout the past 20 years. And that ideology was there 20 years ago. It's still there now. But of course, it has grown stronger in a world where, first of all, he saw certain success in his foreign policy. Internally, Russia has been really badly mismanaged. But externally, Russia has definitely regained a certain level of power and, if you like, respect in geopolitical terms. It has become an important power again. What are some examples of this? I mean, I'm immediately thinking of uh, moving into Syria uh, once once Trump left it. I mean, Crimea is definitely also a win, a win for him. What are, what are some other examples? Yeah, it, it has. To, it, what basically they've been doing is they've been able to stand up to the West and get away with it, and even from a Russian perspective, win, right? Which is basically saying, we do not belong to the Western sphere of influence, we have our own sphere of influence, and we decide what happens on our borders. So Syria and uh, Crimea are really good examples of that. You could also point at Georgia, where they essentially annexed, or at least occupied, uh, part of another sovereign nation. This was before Crimea, of course. Um, but also generally, um, many African countries have started have started doing business with Russia. Russia is starting to develop good ties with Saudi Arabia and with Iran. Um, the world looks at Russia as a power, as an important power. I don't want to use the word superpower because that's, that, that has other connotations. But Russia is respected by the world and is seen as a voice independent to Western dominance and that is exactly the aim of Putin that was exactly what he came to do and that's what he achieved and the more he achieved this 
the bigger his own bubble becomes, right? The stronger he starts believing in his own destiny, in his own project. Now, on top of that, then you've got the fact that he's been an autocrat for 20 years, um, an autocrat that has been slightly misportrayed in the West often because, yes, there have been, it's true, there haven't been any free elections in Russia uh, during his reign, free in the sense of properly free in a democratic, liberal Western sense. But even if elections had been completely free 10 years ago, 50 years ago, Putin would absolutely have been re-elected from everything we know. Not everyone likes him, of course, there has been opposition against Russia, but overall, Russians have appreciated his ability to put Russia back on the map and sort of to delve into that inner sense of pride and that uh, fighting the disrespect that the West has shown Russia over uh, the past 100 years or so, or even more, longer, 200 years. And so... Um, he has been an autocrat for 20 years, but a popular autocrat. And what you see typically with people like that, men like that, is that over time their circle becomes narrower and narrower and they start living more and more in their own bubble where you've got people, if you like the yes men, who just agree with everything that he says and they start believing in their own superiority, in their, their own success. This happened to Stalin. This happened to many kings in the past. It is something that is very common for long-sitting dictators and even sometimes democratically elected leaders. And so he is now in 2022 a leader who has had significant success in his broad foreign policy goals. And at the same time, he... Um, is getting less and less well advised by a closer inner circle that does not stand up to him. And you could clearly see that with the invasion of Ukraine, that, that, that he was very much badly informed about the military possibilities that Russia had at its disposal. See, and here's where I, I really want to switch to Biden or to the West in general, because so, so there were definitely, if we look at uh, Putin's bubble, um, all factors were kind of pointing towards invasion. So oh, we're, it's going to be an easy win, there will be victory parades within a few days. Um, but then, so, 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 so those are basically the, the pull factors, if we want to call it that. Um, however, I assume there were also push factors. And here, I mean, just thinking about how, how Western intelligence services in the weeks leading up to the invasion, basically every single day said, ah, do you know what, tomorrow Putin is going to invade, there's more and more troops, and this was a signal, and here was a signal. Was, was he also pushed in some way by, by the West? Simply, I mean, not directly pushed, but I feel like there was such an expectation created about Russia invading Ukraine that if he had not done it, uh, I don't know, everyone would have been embarrassed. And I mean, this one, uh, this one goes back to, to if we think about uh, the, the invasion of Crimea or the annexation of Crimea, where the West very much felt surprised or Western intelligence very much felt surprised by the Russian invasion. And at this time, they want to get ahead of this. So how much how much does this maybe a bit of a push factor here? Well, I don't know if push or at the very minimum facilitated, I would argue, right? Uh, the, the, the conditions were made easier for Vladimir Putin to invade. So there's a lot made that as if he already months before knew exactly that he was going to invade. It was clear that he had plans that Russia was already in 21 building up 
uh, towards. But the final decisions in those cases are never made until a week or two before. Like the final go, the green light is 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 given then. When, when do we know when the when the when the decision was made? Uh, like I assume it wasn't. The, I mean, it was maybe. So it was definitely wasn't the twenty fourth. It probably was the twentieth. When, when yeah. So if I go back, so it was the twenty fourth. Fourth was was a Thursday. At five o'clock, famously in the morning, and Russian tanks started moving into Ukrainian territory. Um, he he uh, made the official announcement, or he taped the official mon- an announcement on the Monday uh, before the Thursday. That so that would have been the twentieth. Um, is my math or twenty-first? Sorry, um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and what was clear that the Friday before that. Um, there was a flurry of activity. Basically, the news was Russia has decided to do what they're going to do. So that means that roughly a week in advance, the decision had been made. Um, I I became, I mean, we were all looking at the situation. We were all working on it. But on that Friday, a week before, it became completely obvious that Russia was actually going to invade. Whereas on the Thursday before then, I had actually still told my students the likelihood of a Russian invasion is minimal. Um, uh, simply because strategically it didn't make any mistake. Now, we all are wrong once in a while, and I was wrong. Uh, within 24 hours, I was basically told um, by my colleagues, like, okay, the decision has been made. And then I um, had to send an embarrassing email to my students saying, remember what I said yesterday? Please forget all about it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so, so, so back to the intelligence. So then, I mean, so, so you knew a week before, or the intelligence services were they were they were pretending so western intelligence services were pretending all the time that they knew that it was definitely going to happen and what they did by doing that and then reinforcing that through uh these horrific press conferences by president biden uh, who 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 essentially also said oh we know that he's going to invade we just don't know to what extent it might be a small incursion or it might be a really big thing um they laid the foundation they made it first of all harder for putin to back down because uh, if the West is calling you out and if you then back down, it seems as if somehow they have bluffed you into withdrawal, which is if you understand Putin's perspective, that's the, the worst that you can do. You don't want to be outwitted by the West. But secondly, globally, the shock of a invasion that normally you would expect if the moment that Russian tanks or any tanks invade another country, the whole world's to be shocked and outraged. But because of months of the West predicting this, there was no outrage. Everyone thought, yeah, this is, yeah, yeah, okay, it, 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 it's going to happen. We knew it. We knew it was going to happen. No big deal. Now we have to deal with the consequences. And then everyone could get upset with Russia. But the idea of one country invading another country was not a crazy idea because of months of the West trying to be the cleverest in the room and, and showing how good their intelligence services were. And then, and then why, why, I mean, you already mentioned Biden and his press conferences. Why would he do that? Because I felt like comparing this to Europe, uh, Macron and Scholz, so the French president and the German chancellor, were still very much trying to, to talk to Putin, flying to, flying to Moscow, flying to Kiev, trying to negotiate. And then so what's, 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 Biden's intention, well, maybe not intention, but what's what's his, I mean, in what bubble is he stuck that he's going out on a press conference and basically telling Putin, invade or you will look like a fool? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This was, a, this was absolutely a, a Anglo-Saxon strategy and they were very proud of it, right? They, 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 they're still very proud of it. They um, Intelligence agencies have been 
heavily criticized in the 21st century for their failure in Afghanistan, their failure in Iraq when it comes to weapons of mass destruction and all that kind of thing. And now the strategy was clearly, we're going to show how good we are. We're going to call Putin out from an Anglo-Saxon perspective. It seems as if this was an alpha male kind of conflict where, where Biden just wanted to show that he will not be pushed aside by Vladimir Putin and that he knows what Vladimir Putin is up to and he will stand strong. Instead, what you would like to do from a sensible policymaker is, and, and I think continental European leaders were better at that definitely, say, okay, how can we reduce the chance of Putin actually making the final choice? Yes, we know that he wants to. We know that he's been thinking about it. How can we mitigate the circumstances in such a way that it becomes less likely that Ukrainian civilians will have to die because of war. And that would have required not calling out Putin, that it would have required much more low-key diplomacy and creating an exit strategy where Putin mm. could claim success without actually using organized violence. But that mm. became impossible, essentially, because of this Western bubble that they lived in. Now, Biden, if you look at Biden's bubble personally... Um, He's a man who grew up and who became a influential politician during the Cold War. He believes that the United States clearly has a role to play in limiting the reach of the Soviet Union, Russia and authoritarian regimes in general. And so at this moment, uh, he didn't consider the problem, at least I don't know what's going on in the White House internally, but it seems from the outside that he didn't consider the possibility of actually engaging in conversation with Vladimir Putin. And, and what does he stand? Because, I mean, to, to me, it uh, like this sometimes doesn't make sense where if I'm Biden and um, I'm, I don't know, Macron is calling NATO brain dead. Um, If I'm Biden at that moment, what I want is a diplomatic win. So I, I meet with him, I try to give him that exit strategy, and in the end, Putin is portraying himself as the winner and Biden is portraying himself as the winner. So everybody basically wins and nobody loses. So where is then this, like, does he need this, this Cold War mentality? Well, the United States certainly doesn't need it, but um, it is a way for the current president of the United States, and that would have been probably the case for anyone being in that position right now, to renew the kind of identity for the United States, right? There's this Western bubble, as we discussed in a previous episode as well, the Western bubble is in is, is decaying, the, the, the West is on a downward slope. And certainly the United States, both internally having very significant domestic problems, but also externally having an increasingly failing foreign policy, um, they need to find an identity of who they want to be in the 21st century. They're not going to be the only superpower in the world. They're not. It's just not going to happen. So who do they want to be? And by positioning themselves as the good guys, very much within the center of the Western bubble versus the bad guys... Russia, China, um, they can actually find some new life into their in, in, into their existence. Now, that, that Biden, the moment he became president, he was very clear he was going to continue and even exacerbate the anti-Chinese rhetoric from his predecessor, from Donald Trump, Donald Trump. It was very clear we, the United States, are going to stand up against China because we believe that we stand for good and the Chinese authoritarian system is not something that the world should be influenced by, should 
be dominated by. And so very clearly he positioned himself. And then Vladimir Putin starts doing this. Another chance to give new life to the identity of freedom and democracy and capitalism and whatever else, what other, other label you want to attach to it. Okay. okay so then, okay, now we've understood Biden. Um, and then how about the... By the way, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, um, but you mentioned before success. Keep in mind uh, that su diplomatic success uh, for Biden would have been much harder to get if Putin had withdrawn, right? Because that would have meant something like, okay, um, we uh, accept that Ukraine will never be part of NATO, for example. We will sign a document where Ukraine will not join NATO in exchange for you, Vladimir Putin, not invading Ukraine. That would have been seen as a defeat for the West. It would have been seen as a defeat for uh, Biden because it would have been seen as him being bullied by Putin, being put under pressure. And... That would have definitely been a victory for Vladimir Putin, where he could just say, hey, we don't need to invade Ukraine because we got what we wanted. The, the NATO stops its expansion. The West stops its incursion into the Russian sphere of influence. So from that perspective, Biden would have been criticized for doing it, but it would have absolutely been the right approach because it would have avoided the war. See, what, what I even was thinking is, um, and, and now we're going very much back into back in time, like, towards 2015, 2016, about the Minsk protocols. Um, so, so the attempts between uh, Germany, uh, France, Russia, and Ukraine to kind of create, uh, like to, to find to find a solution to, to the already existing uh, Ukraine conflict. So I, I was always thinking if if Biden is able to to impose some some sort of, and then again, now we're going back to the Western bubble and even what we talked about in the last episode about the DRC, where the Belgians wanted democracy and elections, um, instead of just imposing the, the Minsk Protocol, because my impression was always that Ukraine, as Zelensky in particular, didn't want those to go through because it would have meant a, a referendum or some form of voting process in, in the Donbass with giving further autonomy, which would be a clear win for, for Putin because he could say, ah, I'm protecting the Russian minorities. I, I was always wondering where the US was there exerting a bit more pressure on Ukraine to actually implement the Minsk protocols, uh, so the second one, um, that, that to me would have been a diplomatic solution and win, because Biden then can go back and say, ah, so we implemented this, basically saying, ah, the Europeans couldn't get it done, we come in, now the, uh, the protocol is implemented, and we have, a, we have a stable situation. That to me would be a win to Biden, but also a win to Putin, that everyone can sell except the Europeans. Well, I mean, them as well, but not so much. Yeah, but no, that, that is true. That would have been a win, but that would require the United States to take a more sophisticated approach to foreign policy. It would mean that they need to identify themselves as no longer this all-dominant superpower that that guides the world towards Walhalla, towards Nirvana, towards uh, liberal Fukuyama's uh, dream of the end of history, where everyone is democratic and liberal, that would mean the United States giving up that approach, that identity, and saying, we're not going to be a broker for stability and maybe prosperity in the world, but we're not going to impose aggressively limits to authoritarianism. That is not our role. We're no longer the policeman of the free world. We're no longer the leader of the free world. We are something else now. We are a powerful nation. We're comfortable in being democratic ourselves and liberal ourselves. And we want a world where there's stability and relative peace for humanity to develop itself in whatever way it chooses to. Uh, but that, that would require such a radically 
different mindset in Washington that that's very hard to to see, right? But you're absolutely right. That would have been a a, a better approach. It would have certainly avoided a lot of hardship that we are seeing now. Um, but that is not something that's the the American and in, I would say in general the Western mentality allows at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I understand that it makes sense. Um, I mentioned Zelensky uh, because again, in my, at least in my take, it always seemed like the Minsk protocols were kind of being held up by, by, by the Ukrainians because it makes sense. You don't want to give off more autonomy. But what's uh, so, so? Let's look into the personal bias of Zelensky. What's what's his situation here? As newly elected president, actor, very popular among the West and in Ukraine as well. So it is. It, it, it's very interesting. Zelensky was he was. He became president on a wave of, well, revulsion with his predecessor. Um, he became president as an outsider, as an anti-establishment guy, but however supported by business, supported by the West in many ways. Um, and um, he turned out to be not particularly effective in the years before the conflict in, in accomplishing his domestic goals. Right, Domestically, Zelensky was actually under a lot of pressure before the invasion. Then the war comes along. I mean, there were the corruption allegations, uh, political uh, disagreements. Um, he, he, he seemed to be a little bit in over his head. Then the war comes along. Russia invades. And all of a sudden, he becomes a war leader. He becomes the hero who defends the Ukrainian people against the foreign aggressor. And you can see it straight away. He went into that. He shifted into that mode, going from sort of like the businessman approach to... I don't need a suit. I just wear a t-shirt and I don't shave because I don't have two minutes a day to shave myself. Um, and he went into this, I'm standing strong. I'm a symbol for Ru for Ukrainian independence and anti-Russian rhetoric. And so that led to a complete shift in the way that he approached his role uh, as leader of the country, right? Understandably so. I mean, it's not an easy position to be in. Um he started milking sort of this idea that he was a symbol for everything that was good. He started milking into the Western bubble, saying, look at me and look at Vladimir Putin. This, I, am, I am the face of good. Vladimir Putin is the face of evil. And you could see in the, the weeks after the invasion, after the war started, this huge outpouring of support for Zelensky and for Ukraine. And he clearly thrived with that you could see it and he became much more aggressive in his rhetoric knowing that he had a lot of global opinion on his side oh yeah C countless countless articles on oh Zelensky his rhetoric he's so good the social media war president and all of this every um, parliament invited him to speak by video conference a parliament's full applauding standing standing up um, standing ovations for him um, and then he started calling out those leaders who he felt were not doing enough right he started uh, calling for insane policies such as the no-fly zone and saying, oh, NATO is weak. Why is NATO so weak? We, the Ukrainians, are standing strong. We're shooting at Russians. Why aren't you shooting at Russians? A little that kind of approach, which seems to be a whole bubble of stuff. We have to always be careful here. We're not Zelensky's therapist. We're, we don't know his inner mindset. But from the outside, it clearly looks like someone who has now created a mythology around himself, believes in that, and is milking the mythology um, that others are also attaching to him. And so every time that a European leader or another uh, leader 
doesn't fully support Ukraine in the way that Zelensky wants, he gets called out on that. Um, and then, you know, in, in, in the short term, those foreign leaders, they will have to adjust because they're at the moment not as popular as Zelensky, even in their own uh, societies. But now, like basically since the invasion, what type of damages have has the reaction caused? Because we have seen this revival in NATO, um, defense spending going up. Uh, but like, what's so, so 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 what's the what's the damage here? What are we seeing? Yeah, so you've got this horrendous conflict, and let's face it, the the first and foremost victims of this are the Ukrainian population, and then. Um, also, the, the, the poor soldiers fighting on both sides, by the way, there's sometimes a little bit of a um, almost triumphant reaction when there's a news that a um, hundred or a thousand Russian soldiers died in a week or something like that. It's important to remember that these are young boys and sometimes girls, but in the Russian military, mostly boys uh, who... Um, uh, who, who were just sent there, who have no responsibility for starting the war in the first place, and when they get killed, they've got families grieving, right? So let's not let's not ignore the suffering that is caused by the killing of soldier versus soldier violence. But the Ukrainian population, the Ukrainian civilians, and then the fighters directly involved in the war are the first and foremost victims. However, um, beyond that, there is clearly, there are bigger questions. There are bigger questions about how the Western bubble has continued this conflict, how um, our, how it is continuing the conflict, or is it actually easing the conflict? Is it is it making it more likely that the conflict will end, or, or the opposite? Now, unfortunately, here the answer is that the Western bubble is prolonging the conflict. Why? Because by not making this about how can we stop the violence as quickly as possible, but rather how can we defeat evil authoritarian Putin, the narrative and the goals that are set are not those that are in line with reducing civilian casualties, with actually ending the destruction that is happening on a daily basis. Uh, it is not about finding a method to talk to each other and say how can we stop the shooting and how can we get around the table and deal with this as grown-ups um, instead it is about oh this is actually going quite well for us the, the war in Ukraine it's actually becoming a huge problem for Putin how can we feed into this and make it a harder problem for Putin let's escalate the violence let's send more weapons to um, to Ukraine and uh, let's make sure that Vladimir Putin will be humiliated and this is where Macron was absolutely right previously even though he was heavily criticized for it by saying, let's not try to humiliate Putin. Because the more you humiliate Putin, first of all, the more he is likely to escalate the conflict further. And secondly, you don't want to know what happens within Moscow if this becomes a domestic disaster. You don't know what's going to happen if, for example, Vladimir Putin gets ousted. What is the, what is the follow-up to that, right? Mm. So the Western bubble is prolonging this conflict because they see themselves all of a sudden as fighting the enemy, even though the real fighting is done by Ukrainians not by the West. And so they're, they're basically throwing oil on the flames of the war, which is very unfortunate. Um, the weapons that are being sent are mostly uncontrollable. So what happens to those weapons, especially if tomorrow the war were to end, is very unclear. If anyone thinks that all of them will be properly stored and organized by the Ukrainian military, then they're very, very wrong. A lot of these weapons have gone into the hands of relatively autonomous groups that might use them 
for other purposes in the future. That's something to be deeply concerned about. Um, then there is, of course, the anti-Russian bias that has existed, as we just mentioned before, but is now being reinforced once again. Look, um, we are the innocent West. Our NATO expansion towards Russia has no had nothing to do with it. It is Vladimir Putin who, out of his wicked mind, decided to now start this war. All our suspicions about the Russians is once are once again validated. So the anti-Russian bias is strengthened. And as a consequence, our long-term Western bubble is strengthened. We now live in a bigger bubble because we all of a sudden believe that we are a source for global good. Uh, defending poor innocent countries such as Ukraine uh, and that can be seen even in something like NATO yeah. where NATO people in NATO have a new spring in their step they all of a sudden see light at the end of the tunnel life was really hard for NATO for a while but now they, they know why they exist nobody knew why NATO was still there five years ago but now everyone understands oh NATO is there to protect freedom and liberalism oh, they were there to fight climate change um, <laughs> I mean, that was that was That's, that was. It's, well, they've tried. I mean, NATO has tried to extend its portfolio, right? They also tried peacekeeping missions. Didn't really work out well. Um, but 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 now, at least for the next decade or so, nobody is questioning anymore the legitimacy of NATO, even though they should. But no, because NATO is a apparently a protective force against the wicked ideology coming from Moscow. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I can, I, I can only fully agree with this. I mean, suddenly there's no, no more questions about the two percent uh, of GDP being spent on defense. Suddenly, Finland and Sweden want to join. Um, NATO is doing better than ever. That's that's and that's that two percent, uh, Dario. That is another type of insanity, right? The idea that all of a sudden in your beautiful country spending a hundred billion extra on military, uh, on defense, uh, the idea. That because of what happens in Ukraine, we need a stronger military. It is insane if you start thinking about it from a logical perspective. Does anyone think that Vladimir Putin and his advisors in the Kremlin look at the war in Ukraine and think, oh, this has been such a great success. Let's now start invading Poland. If you look at the military budget, the Russian military budget is roughly similar to that of Germany, to that of France, to that of the UK. A few billion here or there, but it's roughly similar. The EU as a whole outspends Russia something of a fact by a factor of one to six or one to seven, let alone the United States, which is in a whole other stratosphere in its spending. The idea that somehow now our military is not equipped to fight Russia is insane. And the idea that Russia would even consider attacking NATO is completely insane. But what happens? We live in this bubble, we see a war in Ukraine, and all of a sudden, every military analyst comes out of the woodwork and sees an opportunity to expand expand this, this spending on equipment that is unproductive, that in the end will weaken Europe, in the end will weaken the United States. All that spending on the military does not go into uh, high tech, does not go into the environment, does not go into the issues that are really, really important to our societies. And therefore, it is once again a perfect example of how a bubble does not allow us to make the right policy choices. The right policy choices, if you choose, if you want Western society to do well, is not to spend it on tanks. We have enough of them, don't worry, uh, we're covered. It is it to spend it on 
the issues that really matter and that in the long term will strengthen Western Europe, that in the long term will strengthen North America. One more, one more point on the damage, uh, because something that uh, I, 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 I mean, the media, is, the media is basically portraying this that if if Ukraine were to like Ukraine is going to to join the European Union any moment. Today uh, is the day where Mario Draghi, Italian Prime Minister Olaf Scholz, and Emmanuel Macron are are in Ukraine and basically. Uh, I mean, uh, let's be honest, we can sign the papers already. What's the potential damage there? Because I'm not sure whether Ukraine is a, is a country that's fit uh, at the moment and 25 years down the line to join the European Union. No, you're absolutely right. Well, I mean, whether it's fit or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, I, I don't think it, it doesn't fulfill the it doesn't fulfill the criteria for entering the EU when it comes to corruption, when it comes to all those things. That's absolutely, absolutely right. But even if it did, it doesn't matter because there is no chance in hell that uh, the EU is gonna vote to let Ukraine become a member state. There's already a lot of skepticism about the expansion towards especially countries like Hungary and Poland to a certain extent and the damage that that is perceived to have caused from a Western European perspective um, who are very uncomfortable with that expansion. Countries such as the Netherlands and others will veto any accession of Ukraine into the EU and there's only one thing that you need to know to be convinced by this Russia has been going on and on and on about Ukraine not joining NATO but they don't seem to care at all about this idea of Ukraine joining the EU why not because they know and every sensible person knows that it's never ever going to happen at least not in any foreseeable future and so what happens then is that now the EU is holding up this, this lovely carrot and saying, look, Ukraine, we're with you. We're supporting you because we've noticed that Zelensky is very popular and we want to get some of that popularity. We want to be seen to be supportive. But the moment things calm down and the moment, for example, Zelensky loses a bit of popularity, that is the moment that reality will hit and it will become completely obvious that there is no serious path for Ukraine to enter the EU. And that will lead to, the Ukraine, feeling, to Ukraine feeling betrayed to Ukraine feeling that certain promises were not kept, uh, that um, their war at home has just been used by the West for other motives. And they're not wrong. Yeah, That's exactly. exactly what is happening. Um, I mean, we're already looking into the future, but uh, last question, what is the future? Um, I mean, what, what are we looking into a world potentially after, after the conflict or what is going to happen with the conflict at all? Um, I mean, yeah, let's start with that, like, what's going to happen with the conflict? I don't think it's going to end tomorrow. Um, there's no peace deal in sight. Uh, it seems like a very slowly moving conflict that is uh, going to drain a lot of resources. Yeah, and that, that, is, that is a kind of military analysis that I don't, I don't want to make predictions because, first of all, it's not my area of expertise. And like I said, I predicted that it was, well, I said that it was very unlikely that the invasion would happen in the first place. And then I looked like a fool in front of my students. Um, so we have to be careful there. Um, but the conflict at some point will very likely become a frozen conflict. So at some point the fighting will stop and that fighting is unlikely to lead to any convincing victory on either side. You, you're right. Russia is very slowly right now making progress, but that progress is not progress in, a, in an overwhelming way that Ukraine will be defeated. And in the same in the same sense, it is highly unlikely that Ukraine will be able to push Russia back all the way to its own border. So that means that there will be some expanded separatist regions 
in the Don in Donbass, maybe the whole of Donbass, who knows, that will be occupied by Russia, and at some point that will lead to a ceasefire, which is not the same as a peace agreement, of course. Or at least, even if it's not a formal ceasefire, a de-escalation of the actual daily conflict. Because at some point both countries will need to take a break, right? Um, when that will happen, I don't know. It's not something that uh, I want to make predictions, but it's going to happen. And the moment that happens, then a reality will hit that on the Russian side, Russia accomplished very little for huge uh, at a huge cost. They expanded something that they already essentially had. The separatist regions already existed. They created a land bridge between Crimea and and and, and those separatist regions, but you know. The, the, it's not a major deal. Russia gained very little at a huge cost. And Ukraine lost a bit of territory, um, but probably regained some of its domestic pride in, sense, in the sense of it defending itself bravely against the foreign aggressor. And at that moment, um, the West will have to acknowledge the fact that they will never be able to kick Russia out of Ukraine. That means that Ukraine will never be able to uh, accede in a serious way to NATO, let alone the EU, which is not going to happen anyway. Um, and at that moment, the world starts, um, you know, um, starts starts dealing with a frozen conflict that could last for decades potentially. Look at look at, for example, the Georgia, uh, where where there's still there's no proper solution to that to a very similar conflict. Just like Crimea was not going to be resolved anytime soon, and that would be a huge problem for NATO and the EU. Because what are they going to do now? They have been expanding towards the Russian sphere of influence. Okay, what what's next? And 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 that then also leads again to that that problem between the Ukraine and between Ukraine and the EU, right? Um, what um, how are they going to redefine their relationship? Ukraine is not going to enter the EU. Are they going to be sympathetic to the EU, or does Ukraine have to look at other possibilities? And then, I mean, so, so looking into the direction of Russia, we already mentioned Macron, who who warned of humiliating Russia and Putin. Uh, again, from a German and especially from a history perspective, uh, everything that happened after World War One. Um, I mean, humiliating a country usually leads to to some form of resurgence at some point. I mean, that's the entire reason. As we laid out before, well, one of the main reasons why Putin has become so popular because he wanted to regain that Russian pride. Um, what's the long-term impact on Russia here? I mean, we're draining. I mean, the resources are being drained. The economy. Well, I mean, it does seem like the sanctions are having some effect. However, what exact effect they will have, we might see further down the line. Where's Russia developing into? Yeah. So, make no mistake. Russia has been paying a very high price for the war, but that high, very pr high price is not so much related to oil embargoes or anything like that. It is a high price in terms of political costs, in terms of lives lost, in terms of just general economic downturn. Uh, Russia is not doing well, um, and 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 they and 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 they have gained very little for it. What this means is that Russia is now a weaker actor, and that means that Russia will have to look elsewhere to find some kind of uh, geopolitical strength and stability. And where else to go than to Beijing, right? To China. Um, and it, this is exactly the problem that, that, that especially continental Europeans have started realizing. The more Putin is seen to be losing in Ukraine and the more he is seen to be humiliated in Ukraine, the more likely a world is going to be of 
Orwellian division, right? Where you've got a Beijing Moscow axis versus a remnant of the West axis, and then maybe a third independent world that sort of aligns itself with whoever. So that's sort of a throwback to the Cold War um, without the clear ideological differences, because of course China and Russia have very different ideological um, approaches and they, they, they can't be thrown on one heap together. So what you see is that as a result of this, Russia and China are going to be more and more closely connected in their competition rivalry with the West. And the West will have to still establish a new identity. They still, this is the, what, what, what happens here is that this war in Ukraine once again postpones the inevitable, namely the West asking itself, who are we and who do we want to be in the future? And how do we want to relate to Beijing? How do we want to relate to New Delhi? How do we want to relate to Moscow? But because of this war, they can continue as if nothing else is required. All they're doing right now is fighting. Um, they're struggling for uh, the right calls and they don't have to ask themselves the tough questions, right? This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on um, well, analyzing the war in Ukraine through, through, the, through the lens of the Western bubble. If you have any questions, uh, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab at riotgroup.org. Uh, we will also add this to the post description below and we will try to incorporate uh, any of them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we attempt to burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Um, Boulder, uh, we always want you to bring a closing quote that we find particularly inspirational on, on the topic. So which closing broad, uh, closing quote did you bring for us today well once not specifically related to ukraine but very apt for the situation in ukraine and especially for the western bubble in general is from the great carl sagan uh, who should be an inspiration to everyone and it is far better to grasp the universe as is as it really is than to persist in delusion however satisfying and reassuring <laughs>